Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to Movie Geeks United, another great Blu-ray roundup we're doing for the month of April. Hope everyone out there is staying sane. Yeah, right. <laughs> in the middle of pandemania. <laughs> oh, man. What else have you got to do except to yeah. stream? Or Everybody seems to be streaming, but I'm that one guy who really isn't doing that. I'm still I've got I'm buried in so much physical media that I'm just struggling to claw my way out so i i don't have time for the streaming i nothing against it but just no timing for it yeah and there's always the danger of crossing the streams and you don't want to do that <laughs> exactly yeah what's what's april look like on the blu-ray horizon is it a good month well it's an interesting month i mean uh the review discs have been a little sparse coming in because some of the distributors obviously are having problems getting their regular product out to people who are the paying customers. And, and as far as getting the review product out to the critics like myself, uh, that's some of the line, some of the uh, distributors have decided just not to do that. Uh, Scream Shout Factory is probably one of the most notable ones. They had some really interesting titles that was coming in out and I didn't get any of those, unfortunately, uh, nor did I get any of the, any of the arrow video titles, but I did get a, uh, a criterion, one criterion, and um, several Warner archives, and uh, a new line of Paramount releases that we're going to talk about a little bit later. But uh, uh, some of these are double dips anyway. But uh, nevertheless, there's still some interesting titles that people should be aware of, uh, regardless of whether I've gotten a chance to look at them. And I, I know a little bit about the details on uh, these releases anyway, even if I don't have a physical copy of them. So I can, I can point the listeners in the right direction. Okay. All right. Well, that's what we need from you. A sense of direction. <laughs> well, all right. So let's, let's start. Let's do it. Um, let's start with cats from 2019. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, what? <laughs> <laughs> bad joke, bad joke. It was released April 7th, but that was just a bad joke. Um, a lot of people think it's a bad joke. But anyway, uh, no, we'll say the uh, the cult film Beyond the Door has been issued from 1974. This is the second time this one has been released. I think Scorpion Releasing put it out a couple of years ago. Code Red, I'm sorry, put it out a couple of years ago. This is the, um, the Exorcist ripoff that starred Juliette Mills and Richard Johnson. And uh, it's a pretty wild movie. I remember seeing it when I was 10 or 11 years old. Originally, it turned up – CBS used to have a thing on Friday nights where they would show movies at 1130 or midnight. Uh, they call it CBS Late Night. And this was one of those movies that turned up. And the trailers used to run all the time when I was a kid, and the trailers were scary as hell. Uh, and I remember watching the movie, and it was one of those head scratchers even as a 10-year-old. But some of the possession stuff in this film is really spooky, really scary. Uh, it kind of borrows elements of not only The Exorcist, but it also borrows elements of Rosemary's Baby and uh, a lot of the stuff that was prevalent at that time. But um, what makes it notable is that uh, they've done a really bang-up job on this release. Arrow Video has gone back to the original 35mm camera negative. Uh, 
so beyond uh, beyond the door, they made a series of these. They did. They made three of them. Uh, they had no relation to the original Beyond the Door, the 1974. I think they were in name only. Um, I think uh, the second one was directed by Mario Bava, which uh, that's a name that will be familiar to our Giallo fans. And it was one of his final films, but it, it was originally titled Shock, and then they just retitled it Beyond the Door 2. It had one cast member from Beyond the Door in it, but no relation. And Beyond the Door 3, I don't know what the hell the deal was with that, so I <laughs> can't tell you. <laughs> but uh, like I said, Beyond the Door is an interesting movie. Uh, I remember Roger Ebert gave it one star, but he said uh, it's trash, but it's interesting trash. And uh, that's a good way to put it. That's a good summation, I would say, um, because it it does have some effective possession scenes. I just wish it had a stronger story to go along with them. Mm. That would be, that would be nice. In fact, I think it outdoes some of this stuff in The Exorcist with the possession stuff. I think it really does. But uh, the the rest of the movie is not as good as The Exorcist, obviously. But uh, but if you just want to see some good possession stuff, Beyond the Door is your movie, and it's a two-disc set from Arrow Video. Like I said, two cuts of the film. There's a longer cut of the film. It even has the alternate VHS opening from the film and lots of behind this uh, interviews with the talent, some of whom are now deceased. And Well, anyway, Kino's got a slew of titles out. We'll go through some of these right quick. We have um, Bo Jest starring Gary Cooper. Supernatural, starring Carol Lombard and Randolph Scott, The Lives of a Bengal Lancer, starring Gary Cooper, and Angel with Marlena Dietrich, and The General Died at Dawn with Gary Cooper and Madeline Carroll, so, and Murder, he says, with Fred McMurray, that's another one. So quite a few titles from Kino, they usually pump out a lot of stuff uh, each month, usually close to a dozen, and I don't know, that's probably half a dozen right there. Um, Army of Shadows from 1969 is a Criterion release, and then Universal has issued a couple of um, – well, Universal and so, – well, first of all, Sony has released uh, a couple of catalog titles, I should say. All the Pretty Horses from 2000. That was kind of an ill-fated uh, Billy Bob Thornton directorial effort post-Sling Blade, and I think the original cut of that film was four hours, and he fought with – Famously fought with Harvey Weinstein over the final oh, yeah. cut yeah. of the film. Yeah, and he – I know after it was released in the truncated two-hour version, he said he was not, he was just totally discouraged from directing ever again, although he did return behind the camera, I believe. Did he not after that for one Yeah, the, the Jane, uh, Jane Mansfield's car. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking uh, that he did because I know he did Daddy and Them, but that was filmed before All the Pretty Horses, but released after because that uh, – yeah. Yeah, but if you I ever want to see Robert Duvall being slipped a tab of acid, uh, check out Jane Mansfield's car. <laughs> I never got around to seeing Jane Mansfield's car. I, I remember it now that you – It's not great. He just didn't really have a lot of success post-Sling Blade as far as... Uh, Directing, his, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, um, you know, he's he did a pretty good... He had a pretty good run there with some of the scripts that he pinned for other directors that were filmed with other... Uh, you know, for others. So, anyway, uh, Wimbledon is being issued from 2004 with Chris, Kristen Dunst, Paul Bettany... <laughs> Boy, don't 
you long for those days. Um, Heroes with Henry Winkler and Sally Field and Harrison Ford. Uh, this was originally supposed to be issued a couple of months ago, and they moved the date. But Mule Creek is putting this one out. Uh, this was, of course, I think it was directed by Jeremy Paul Kagan, who I believe was uh, – wasn't he the writer of The Sting, I believe? I think that's the deal here. Well, anyway, um, yeah, this was – Made at the time when, of course, Henry Winkler was on television screens everywhere as the as the Fonz, and so they were going to try to make him uh, cash in on that and give him his opportunity at a big screen feature film, and didn't quite do what he had hoped, I don't think. Uh, so he uh, this was released the same year that he jumped the shark as Fonzie on. <laughs> And the film jumped the shark, as it turned out. Um, never saw, anyway, never I, saw Heroes. And who, who again? Who, who's the female lead opposite him it's in that? Sally Field. Really? Yeah. So. Well, I have, yeah. wa- I have watched some Sally Field movies in the past week. Oddly enough, uh, one of them I can't remember what it was. Uh, but it, yeah, The Absence of Malice. Oh yeah, uh, that's good. Yeah, it's okay. And. Um, Murphy's Romance, which I love. It's been so oh, many, so many years since I've seen that. And then I went back and I read some of the reviews of that movie when it came out, mm-hmm. and uh, people were kind of very critical of it for just being so homey that there was no that there was no like edge to it. And, and it's, you put you put an edge to Murphy's Romance. It's not Murphy's Romance anymore. I mean, the whole thing is supposed to feel homespun and congenial and just put a smile on your face. It doesn't need any kind of underlurking demons. <laughs> yeah, I know. I I I um I do remember it being, you know, they were kind of lukewarm. I, I don't think they hated it, but I remember there was a lukewarm reception, and yeah, that's that's what I remember as well. And I I never quite got that. Cause I'm like you. I'm a big fan of it, and it's Martin Ritt. You know, he. There's not too many bad films that Martin Ritt made. I don't think there's any real clunkers. There's some that are less successful than others, but I don't think he's capable of really doing bad work. So no, Martin Ritt was great. We talk about Martin Ritt a lot in this new series. I had a conversation with his biographer, and yeah, Martin Martin Ritt was interesting. I mean, from HUD to Stanley and Iris, you know, he had a mm-hmm. big, impressive career. And very socially conscious filmmaker, too. That's why Murphy's Romance is kind of... It doesn't fit in that mold. But uh, And you know who they wanted? They wanted... The studio wanted Marlon Brando. And uh, Martin Ritt kept pushing for uh, James Gardner. Mm -hmm. Who's... I can't imagine Murphy's Romance without James Gardner. I mean, James Gardner is the movie for me. And and, uh, it got him his first ever uh, Oscar nomination, that movie. Yeah, that's that's right. I totally had forgotten that and that that was the case. Could you imagine yeah. Murphy's Romance with Marlon Brando? <laughs> well, you know, there's the famous story that he he didn't like to work, that he was lazy, and he would take the paycheck and try to figure out a way not to show up. So I wonder if he would have had them animate his part or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I want to play this role like a suitcase. And then when he did show up, he, uh, he he pulled the shenanigans like he did on the island of Dr. Moreau, wearing the uh, – having the pitcher of ice in his and turban yeah, or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's, oh, goodness. Brando. Oh, well, 
you could say one thing, he was never boring. <laughs> Brando fascinates me. I mean, Br- Br- uh, you know, Brando, undeniably talented. He, the, and he kind of, uh, I think there was a lot of, obviously, there was a lot of self-loathing in Brando. And uh, it was taken out in a variety of ways. Uh, his his attitude towards his own profession at a certain time was just one of those ways. Mm-hmm. And then what he did to his body and all of that kind of stuff. But man, you see early Brando and you just like, you know, it's a beautiful man. I mean, Amazing it, yeah. too, the work. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, I recently rewatched uh, Streetcar Named Desire. I hadn't seen it in years and years and years, and yeah, he he just uh, uh, he's dynamite. What can you say? I mean, there's no other way to put it. Uh speaking of Mill Creek, who released Heroes, they've also released uh, Eddie Macon's Run. Now, when did you ever think you would see uh, Kirk Douglas and John Schneider teaming up? <laughs> well, it's almost get- like it's almost like Kirk Douglas and Andrew Stevens. <laughs> Pretty close. Yeah, that's still amazing when I think about that. Uh, what a pairing. Yeah. Who the hell am I acting across from? Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess it does tie in with heroes because John Schneider obviously was a television star of the highest order at that same time, just like uh, Henry Winkler. So it's it there is a there is a connecting thread there if you if you look hard enough. And movies like Eddie Macon's Run, I mean, that was like. A Cinemax staple, I I, I seem oh, to remember. Yeah. yeah, it's like that, and a movie like Black Moon Rising. It was a Tommy Lee Jones mm-hmm. thing, and like all of those kind of. Because Eddie Macon's Run is something like eighty three, eighty four. Yes. Okay. Yes, eighty three. Yeah. yeah. I remember another one that came out that summer around that time or close to it at this, that uh, that was an HBO staple tough enough with Mac yeah. Davis and uh, Mac Davis <laughs> Mac Davis, Mac Davis and, and Dennis Quaid mm. and I remember I remember that running equally as much as Eddie Macon's run so when I think of Eddie Macon's run I cannot not think about uh, tough enough that's the other one that just always pops into my mind for some reason. Man, and I just I just watched uh, that uh, Dennis Quaid movie, The Intruder, last night. What a supremely stupid movie! But uh, oh, yeah. Dennis Quaid is very entertaining at it. I think Dennis Quaid. It, it's kind of it's not quite as accomplished as John Voight in Anaconda, but I think he knows he's in a stupid movie and he's being playful with it. I mean, what else can you do with something as uh, lackluster as I'm sure that script was? <laughs> yeah. And something about his toothy, his, you know, his grin, like, literally goes from ear to ear. I mean, he has a big mouth. Oh, yeah. And he uses that for maximum menacing effect in The Intruder. This is very true. Well, Terror Train is being reissued from 1980. This was, of course, Jamie Lee Curtis. I think it was um, maybe the first film she made after the success of Halloween. And what about prom? Uh, prom night. Prom night. Ah, uh, yeah, she had three the same year. I'm thinking this might have been the first one to coming out of the gate, but I might be wrong. You prom night. Prom night might have been, but 1980. I know she did prom night, the fog, and terror train. Mm. Uh, I can't remember the exact dates. Yes, she was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, terror train is directed by Roger Spottiswood, and it's an interesting film. It's been previously released. 
uh, by Scream Factory. It was one of their first releases when they started that label. It has now gone out of print. Their license, their ability to license the film has expired. So Code Red has picked that up the mantle, and they've uh, reissued it. Uh, I don't know if there are any new extras, or and I don't even, I'm not even sure if uh, the Scream Factory extras have been carried over i doubt it because they probably have copyright to all of those so if you have your old screen factory blu-ray you might want to hang on to it but it is interesting uh, you know it's a costume party on a train and the, uh, the killer is dressed up as a train conductor on the train you know he's got this clown face but he's got the train conductor hat and all that stuff and anyway it's uh it you never really – it's one of those things where you, you never know who's doing it because everybody's wearing a costume. And, uh, you know, David Copperfield is in the film as a magician, and, you know, it's it's not bad of its type. Um, he know, plays a magician? Uh, yeah, oh. well, yeah, he's playing – yeah, David Copperfield playing a magician. Imagine that. It's his greatest but, trick. Yeah, his great <laughs> – that's good. Yeah, that did sound kind of stupid, me saying that. I didn't think of how that would come out. But yeah, yeah, he did. <laughs> Guilty as charged. So Terror Train being reissued by Code Red. Um, Trapped, starring Charlie's Theron from 2002. That's another Mill Creek oh, yeah. release. Kevin Bacon, right? Plays yes. the kidnapper or the bad guy or whatever. That's the one, yeah. Courtney Love, I believe, is in that too. I think a lot <laughs> of actresses went through that subgenre of... Their child's been kidnapped or something, and they mm-hmm. have, yeah. I think that that's kind of felt like, for a time there, like a rite of passage if you were a young, younger actress. You had, to, <laughs> you had to appear in a movie with that plot. Yeah. It was a, yeah, early 2000s. Yeah, there, there was a lot of that going on. Halle Berry yeah. did one, too, the cell phone thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, what was the name of that? It was really It was really bad. I remember the first two acts of the film were, were okay, and then it just became totally implausible where she decided she was going to leave her job and become this uh, <laughs> quasi-detective, I guess you would say, and solve the case herself. That was just so hard to buy. Another film from 2002 has been issued by Universal Empire, starring John Leguizamo, 2002. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. That's another one of those... Early 2000 releases that, uh, like, like we were just talking about, it was. It's funny the how uh, the trends were going, the trends that were going on in years go gone past, and you can see them from afar. But at the time, you don't really. <laughs> well, I'm going to talk about one here. It's a television show, but it does. It was uh, later on adapted into a film series that was quite successful and. Uh, I definitely want to make sure that people know it's out there because it has a huge following. Police Squad in color <laughs> has been oh. issued on Blu-ray. All six episodes of it? How many All were there? Six episodes. Uh, but it's worth mentioning because this has – well, obviously it's been remastered in high definition, but it has a ton of extras on here. Uh, there's commentary by the Zuckers and Jim Abrahams and Robert K. Weiss. Um there are there is a gag reel. Uh, there's uh, featurettes gag with reel. Uh, wow. yeah 
them goofing their lines and stuff. There's a behind the freeze frames featurette because you remember they would do the mm-hmm. freeze frames at the end. There's a Leslie Nielsen interview, casting tests, photo gallery of the scenery, sets, and props, which I'm sure are hysterical. A uh, list of celebrity death shots and production memo highlights, which are very interesting because these are the actual production memos of things that were them by ABC. That's the network it aired on that where they were trying to – the things they wanted censored or trimmed or they would go through the script. So the, the actual production memos that were uh, censored by ABC are actually on the, the Blu-ray as a bonus. So if you were a fan of Police Squad and who isn't, or and if you haven't seen it, what are you waiting for? In some instances, I think the, the series is at, at times as funny or maybe even funnier than the films. Uh, I think it's interesting, the, the series, because he totally plays it serious, whereas towards the end of the film series, eh, he was kind of giving in to shtick a little bit. I love them. Don't get me wrong. Those are they're great films, but he, he did get a, a little bit close to shtick, and he never – he never got into that type of territory as long as he was doing the, the films. And I think that's, uh, I yeah. mean, as the, the TV series. I mean, I love, I love the films. Uh, and I like the TV series. And for the films, they did cannibal, cannibalize quite a bit of the TV, TV series. Yes, they did. It's just the corniest. I don't know. I laugh a lot at like, extremely corny humor. And uh, both Police Squad and the Naked Gun movies are just uh, absorbent with with the corniness so they're the people on a date and they're at a party and they're like let's go out back to the japanese gardens and they walk out back and a bunch of japanese people standing in potted plants <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness yeah they, i mean you can actually freeze frame some shots from the tv series and look at the background what's going on and, it, and you can't even keep a straight face just looking at the background uh you know well, there's that one where he's running a key story. <laughs> uh, how did you? Who are you? And how did you get in here? Uh, I'm a locksmith, and I'm a locksmith. <laughs> it's great stuff. So anyway, uh, Police Squad, the complete series, is now available on Blu-ray. So a couple other things here. Sixteen Candles has been issued. Another Arrow video release. It's a and it's been released uh, with a slightly longer cut. It's about five minutes longer. So there's two cuts of 16 candles. So there's some new extras here, new interviews and all that stuff, new transfers. Anyway, another Criterion release would be Destry Rides Again with Marlena Dietrich and Jimmy Stewart. New transfer, new extras on this as well. So uh, And uh, another uh, couple of Warner Archive releases for the month. Uh, one is V, The Final Battle. Last year, they released the original miniseries V, which was, interestingly enough, was shot in the 1.78 to 1 ratio because Kenneth Johnson, who directed and wrote that series, the original film, uh, he was also behind The Incredible Hulk. And when they turned The Incredible Hulk into a theatrical film, he was upset because it was a you know, it was the, the image was squarish and they tried to stretch it out. So he decided to shoot V in the widescreen format because he knew it was going to be a film overseas. And it was and did quite well. Uh, so and what I'm getting to here is that V, the final battle was released on DVD in the widescreen aspect ratio of 1.78 as well. Well, the problem is it was not shot in the widescreen ratio. It was actually 4x3, always intended to be that way. They've corrected that on this release. 
and it is because they, it was just um, stretched out and it looked really odd. And so the original V is a widescreen production. V, the final battle, is not, and it has been correctly uh, produced on disc, on the Blu-ray disc, and it's a correct aspect ratio, which is four by three. So for anybody who's con- who's a big fan, and I know there are a lot of 80s nostalgists out there who love that show and or those films and the mini the film and the miniseries and so just wanted to for whatever it's worth that's the selling point on this is that it has now been correctly uh corrected Where the correctly snip- corrected, corrected <laughs> i'm just not doing too well tonight. no 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 uh, it's beautiful beautiful alliteration uh, yeah our, our our mutual friend rick uh loves v and uh I, and I have vivid memories of it from when I was a kid. I have never returned to it, but I do remember when it premiered on television and watching it. Yeah, the original film I think still holds up. It's a, it's an allegory for the rise of uh, Nazism, you know, in, in the in World War II, and so there's a lot of that subtext going on. So it's not it's a science. It's kind of like Twilight Zone, whereas you know where they would. It could be sci-fi. They would disguise a serious thing under the guise of science fiction, you know, and he would be. And that's kind of what he was doing with that. Uh, The miniseries, not so much. (laughs) It's not quite that smart, although it's interesting. It's entertaining on a soap opera level because, you know, that's the one where you have the lizard baby because the one the one girl gets pregnant by uh, one of the aliens. And she has the I remember it ended uh, because it was a three part miniseries, whereas the original was a two part film. Uh, this was a mini series, and one of the episodes ends at the cliffhanger with her going into labor, and you see the, a little bit of the the lizard head or something like that. <laughs> and if you remember, we, you and I saw the uh, the actual prop, the lizard baby, at that museum where we went to. Oh, really? They had that there? Yeah, it was there. We saw it. Yeah. Huh. Sure did. They had the actual puppet because it was the puppet that was used in the final battle, and I think uh, Rick uh, got a kick out of that, from what I remember. So, oh, cool. Yeah, so we did see that. It was uh, it was fun to see it up close and personal. Although the head was all about was really the only thing that that there was. The rest of it was all gears and mechanics and stuff. <laughs> it wasn't really a full body, <laughs> you know. Interesting. Yeah, it was. It was. You know well, what? Here's here's another. Speaking of memorabilia and yeah. stuff from movies, here's something I discovered about because I rewatched for like the seventh or eighth time, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And uh, there's a brief scene where Sharon Tate walks into the bookstore before she enters the theater and watches herself on screen. She walks into the bookstore and she's asking for her special order of of the novel Tess of the Dubervilles or whatever the right. book was, which has special significance because she, right around that time, recommended it to Polanski. And after her death, Polanski actually made the movie and dedicated mm-hmm. it to her. But in that bookshop... And she even takes time to lean down and like touch it is a replica of or what you would think is a replica of the Maltese Falcon. Mm-hmm. It's the black kind of little statue there. And that's actually the real Maltese Falcon. That's uh, and, and DiCaprio bid on it and won it at auction. And I guess he put it in there as like a, a dressing for that particular set, which I thought was interesting. Just another interesting little tidbit that you can find in that movie. So that's a real Maltese Falcon I that, did not know that, that. She's, she's touching in that bookstore. Well, next time I go back and rewatch that, I'll, I'll 
I'll um, have to remind myself to pay closer attention to that detail. That's it's very curious. Nice to be rich. If you could buy one prop from a movie, if you had the means to purchase something from an auction, what would it be? What would be your brass ring? Oh, my goodness. Boy, that's a... You know, I would love to have one of the models from uh, The Towering Inferno because I'm such a fan of that movie. Or, yeah, The Towering Inferno would be... Would be, or maybe the original suit that Rick Baker wore in the '76 King Kong, because those were childhood favorite films of mine. I'm not saying that you know that they're the greatest films ever made, but because they were so important to me as a child, I would just ah, oh, that would be just awesome if I could if I if I could acquire like a model. Although I think uh, the the actual the the model that's used. In the majority of the shots of the Towering Inferno, was <laughs> it was almost the size of a skyscraper. I think it was huge. They built it on that, uh, that the 20th Century Fox Ranch is where they built it out there on the lot. But I think there's a smaller version of it. I would like to have that uh, if, they're, if it's still around. Huh? Yeah, yeah. it's always iffy if those things are still around or not. But even to get like a, a brick from it or something, you know. Like a piece of plaster from it, oh, so yeah. you, you could say that this is from the set of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And Spielberg has the sled from Citizen Kane, I think. So oh, there are, amazing. yeah, which is probably probably the ultimate movie prop, I guess. Oh yeah, of course. Well, how about you? What's uh, what's your go-to? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, I mean, there are movies that I romantic. It would probably be one of those movies that I romanticize, but. Um, but I don't know. I don't really know. I, I, uh, I like the idea of probably be more tuned into stars, like uh, you know, a bottle of perfume from Marilyn Monroe's house, you know, or like a one of her prescription bottles or something, or a blank check she wrote. Like I think it'd be cool to own something like that. Oh, I think so too. Yeah. Uh, anything, you know, I, um, when you said prescription bottle, my mind instantly went to the Milton Burl <laughs> prescription bottle that Scott Michaels had. <laughs> why, well, did that, why did that happen? I don't know. And then, uh, and then, uh, I mean, Tony gave me his letter that he got from Kubrick. So I do have a, I do have a piece of Kubrick, something that Kubrick actually touched because it does have his live signature on it. Uh, so I have that in my That's possession. Amazing, yeah. Of course, it says Tony, so I got to do something about that. I either got to change my name to Tony, <laughs> or I got to like white it out and put my name in there. Yeah, that is that is a great one to have, man. That's not something just anybody has. So yeah, that's good. That's yeah. Well, a couple other Warner Archive titles. One is Tin Cup with Kevin Costner and Rene Russo from that's 1996, fine. That's fine, written yeah, directed by Ron Shelton, co-written by Ron Shelton, of course, and um. Yeah, I guess he's reteaming with um, Kevin Costner after the Bull Durham and all that. So it's a good role yeah. for him. Uh, no extra. It's, it's a movie he needed to do. It's the kind of character I wish he had done more of, but he got so self-important and inflated, and you know, in so many movies during a certain period that uh, he forgot what made people attracted to him in the first place, which was his charm. And there's a lot of charm in Tin Cup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's one that played regularly when I was a projectionist back in those days. So I remember it quite well. And a surprising uh, ending. I mean, you know, a surprising ending that he 
doesn't win. Spoiler! Spoiler! Hit. Spoiler alert! Dropping five, hitting six. What the hell's he gonna do? Why would he hit it from here? What he had to do is walk up there and take a drop and make a five for crying out loud. That's insane. Somebody tackle him. Give me another ball. Yeah, Renee Russo's really good, too. I mean, she was just uh, perfectly cast in those you know there's so many movies he made around you know where she was she was kind of um you know they were seeing a lot of these younger starlets but she was she was proving that you didn't have to be a young starlet to uh to have the chops and yeah she was great she was enormously popular and i think never better than she was in thomas crown affair i think she is thomas crown affair for me she's what's most alluring about that movie oh i agree yeah very very good one other warner archive title uh, that was released, and I wasn't familiar with this one, Action of the Tiger, starring Van Johnson and Herbert Lom. And this is um, – it's about a mercenary sea captain willing to do anything if the price is right, and, a, and it's a Cold War adventure set amidst the wilds of Greece and Albania. It is interesting because uh, Terrence Young directed this, and Terrence Young, of course, would go on to do the first couple of James Bond films, and – Sean Connery is in this film, uh, a very young Sean Connery, in one of his um, first films. This is one of Sean Connery's early, early efforts. And then five years later, they teamed up to do the, the James Bond stuff. So anyway, Action of the Tiger is a film that uh, I don't think it's ever been released on video at all. But um, Warner Archive has has corrected that error, that oversight. So – Captain Chrono's Vampire Hunter from 1974 is a Scream Factory. It's new extras, new transfer on that. Cattle Annie and Little Britches is a – here's a couple more Kino titles. Cattle with uh, Burt Lancaster and John Savage and Rod Steiger. Uh, the Golem from, from 1920 is uh, another one of the Kino titles. Song of Norway. Norway, which is a <laughs> Florence Henderson in a musical <laughs> based on the music of uh, Grieg. <laughs> yeah, this was one of those notorious musicals that just fell with a landed with a dud. <laughs> uh, I did tell you one one offbeat musical. I guess you could call it musical because it's class, classical music that I like mm-hmm. is uh, Ken Russell's uh, Mahler. Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, I actually like that movie a lot. Yeah. yeah, I like that. He did a bunch of those that are really good. Uh, I'm a big fan of the music lovers with uh, Richard Chamberlain, where he plays um, – oh, my God, I'm, 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 I'm forgetting which composer he plays in that film. But anyway, uh, the music lovers, that's fantastic. Mm. Uh, I just love that one. So, yeah, uh, so yeah, he, he was <coughs> t- turning out quite a few of those. At, Tchaikovsky. He plays Tchaikovsky, that's yep. correct. Yeah, it was on the tip of my tongue, and I couldn't. But I just know it's so well done, uh, and featuring music by Andre Previn. He does all the adaptations, and it's just uh, pretty stunning, I think. Mm. Anyway, so what about I See You, the uh, 2002 Sylvester Stallone film? <laughs> this was oh, not God. exactly a high point in his career. <laughs> Well, isn't this one that was in the vault for the longest time, and then they just pulled it out? Yeah, hmm. sat there for a couple of years. You're right. Yeah, and yeah, he he couldn't even get theatrical releases at this yeah. point. So ironic that it was titled "I See You." 
when, <laughs> when for so long you couldn't. That is true. Yeah, and it, I think it was Rocky Balboa that finally got him back to the point where he could actually get a film re- released theatrically because uh, there mm. was a, a couple of years where he was in the wilderness there. That's like if Paul Schrader's, well, anyway. it's, it's like if Paul Schrader's film Light of Day never got released. <laughs> yeah. Well, the time limit with Richard Widmark is another Kino release. It's it's another one of theirs. As is Jungle Queen from 1945, and another Kino release. And this one is one of the Scorpion titles that their distri- Kino is distributing, but it's actually being released by Scor- Scorpion, which is one of their subsidiaries. I think uh, this has a very interesting cast. It was a 1986 film, Uphill All the Way, and get ready for it, Roy Clark and Mel Tillis and Glenn Campbell. <laughs> What's going on with you today? Roy Clark, Back Davis, John Schneider? What's uh, <laughs> I see a pattern. I know, going back to the days of E-Hall, right? Yeah. The, yeah. Do we have a mini Pearl title in here? Just tell me. I don't think we do. I don't think, uh, not unless there's something that uh, has that I missed earlier. But, uh, yeah, Uphill All the Way. I remember when this was released, actually, because my mom was a kind of a, a fan of Hee Haw. <laughs> she oh, was. I used, I used to watch Hee Haw when I was little. Well, I came from a country family. My extended family <laughs> was very country. So I we'd, watched we'd gather around, like, every Saturday night or whenever it came on, we'd watch Hee Haw. <laughs> I watched it. Uh, I, I think I liked it at the time, but as I've gotten older and rewatched it, uh, I go back and I, it, it doesn't quite hold up. <laughs> I think yeah, I think Hee went out of fashion once they started making TVs that didn't require the external antennas that you that you <laughs> yeah. put like tid, uh, tid foil on. Oh yeah, a couple of years ago I got my mom a box set of the of Hee episodes and uh, my son he was aware of the, the the series but didn't know anything about it and so he he watched an episode or two of it and he, he said this is so terrible. <laughs> <He was> like, <laughs> It's like people have watched this because this is awful. It's as corny as all as, as it can be. Anyway, so the Mickey Rourke film 1988's Homeboy has been issued by Shout Select. Oh God, I love that score. Eric Clapton did the score for that, and uh, it's such a great moody guitar score. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is good. I, I have not seen that in forever. I would like to revisit that. Uh, I remember it being pretty good, actually. Uh, back in the day, uh, but yeah, I'd, I would like to go back and revisit. And another Kino title coming out, and this is one that you're going to be talking about on our upcoming series, Jenny, Marlo Thomas and Alan Alda, and this mm. is a new commentary by our friend of the show, Lee Gambin. And did uh, you get that? Yeah, I did not. No, I didn't. Okay. I didn't get any Kino titles, unfortunately. I'd be interested in hearing his commentary for it. Yeah, I would too. Because our segment on that movie, it's the second segment of the entire series, because it came out early that year. It came out something like January 2nd of 1970. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's an interesting story, uh, which you wouldn't expect with something like Ginny with Alan Alda and Marlo Thomas. Mm-hmm. It feels kind of like a ready-made TV movie, but it wasn't a TV movie. It was made by ABC because they wanted to get into making feature films, but it was and it was actually a feature film. It just feels like a TV movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they uh they put they didn't they didn't last very long ABC Motion Pictures, but they were around for a couple of years and and 
you do have to remember that they were responsible for bankrolling Woody Allen's directorial debut, uh, Take the Money and Run. That was one of their films. As mm. Also, though, they shoot horses, don't they? So they, they put out some – and they also bankrolled uh, Ingmar Bergman's English-language debut, the, the Touch, with Elliot mm. Gould. So they were – they had a couple of interesting curios. Yeah, and I like their, their, their uh, recording arm. I mean the the some of the records that ABC came out oh, with back yeah. in the day I really like. Of course, they they were they had a lot of artists on their roster. They had uh, Paul Anka and Ray Charles and um, just quite a few Lloyd Price. Like the, there were so many bands back in the late '60s, early '70s that wanted to hit. And it was there's a lot of bands that are like either a lot of them were psychedelic, and then there were some that were kind of swamp rock and that kind of stuff, but uh, but they only did like one album and then they didn't make it. But uh, I started collecting those and a lot of those are like gems. Mm-hmm. I can't I can't I can't name any of them right now. There's folk stuff, uh, and a lot of them were on the ABC Records label. Yeah, they were. Uh, they were putting out a lot. Like I said, their product was uh, – they were pretty prolific in the uh, late 60s, early, early 70s. And um, so, yeah, they – I think they uh, – I wanted to say uh, I think Steppenwolf was on that label too, but I believe mm. – I could be wrong about that. But anyway, I know uh, they were eventually absorbed by uh, by MCA. They bought them out in the late 70s. And by that time, I think they were mostly a country label. By the time that they got absorbed, uh, no, no, I take that back because they did. They, they, Jimmy Buffett was on ABC, so yeah, they were still, they were still on the pop game. Well, Jimmy so. Buffett's kind of, I don't know, he toes the line. I think he, he toes the line between country and folk pop. You know, yeah, I think he draws upon the set, that same audience. I think uh, Shaka Khan, Rufus and Shaka Khan were on ABC, and uh, let's see, Stephen Bishop and B.J. Oh, yeah. Thomas. Stephen so, yeah. Stephen Bishop, wow. Yeah. Hmm. Quite a quite a few in the late '70s that were still recording for. Oh, uh, and don't forget, um, I think uh, Steely Dan were on it. Uh, yeah, I think they yeah they were. were. Pretzel yeah. Logic and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So. So yeah. A lot of uh, they 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 were pretty had a pretty good roster of artists there. That's some that's some white some white groovy stuff right there, Steely Dan. <laughs> it took me a while to become a fan, but I think I've reached that point. And you know, for a long time, I really didn't. I just never really got into them. But as I've, uh, I think I've finally officially reached that point. I'm a little late to the game, but yeah, uh, and I think some people. You got to be a lot closer to death to to appreciate Steely Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I'm not that close, but uh, <laughs> yeah, but I'm definitely closer. There's no doubting that. But anyway, well, we'll talk about the Paramount labels. And they have released a new sub- special uh, specialty division, I guess you would say. Paramount has to uh, where they're highlighting catalog titles because notoriously they have not done a lot with their back catalog uh-huh. for the last several years and they decided that they were going to do that so they've got a new a line of blu-rays called paramount presents and they've just put out the first three releases they came out april 21st and um number one in the series was fatal attraction 
uh, has a new feature on it. It has uh, Adrian Line, the director, discussing Fatal Attraction, and it has a couple of holdover special features, commentary by Adrian Line and rehearsal footage, and of course that alternate ending that we all know about. Um, there are a couple of features. Would you have preferred the, it with the uh, alternate ending? Um, I don't think so. I think the ending they chose works pretty well. Uh, yeah. what, do, what do you think? I think so too. I think it would have been such a bummer if they had stuck with their alternative ending or the first choice ending that they had at the beginning. But uh, and it wouldn't be nearly as popular. Like it would oh, not. No. It would not have been the cultural kind of avalanche it was. No, you're exactly right. It, it, it just it would not have. And um, so they made a wise choice with that one. Yeah. I remember the first time that that uh, alternate ending was was ever seen was on the laser disc. I think they they put it out on laser disc, and that was oh, yeah. the first time the public got to to see that. Mm. Yeah, my laser. But this disc. is a, I sure do have a yeah. soft spot for my laser discs that I used to own. <laughs> uh, you know, I I don't want to talk about how much money I plunked down for laser discs back in oh, the day. Yeah. It makes me a small fortune. It makes me sick to think about it. Uh, but man, that was the only way to see these things, you know, the special features and the commentaries. And you still got uh, a player? I I I had one until it, the laser went out on it, and I was told that it would be more expensive to. Oh. It would just be very expensive to replace that laser, so man, I just I. I remember yeah. the first marketing contest I ever won uh, when I was a theater manager was for the movie Brain Scan with. Uh, the kid from Terminator 2, Eddie, whatever. Yeah, or Furlong, Edward Furlong. <laughs> yeah. So I got the prize check, and I said, I know exactly what I'm doing with this prize check. I'm going to go buy a Laserdisc player. <laughs> and so I went to Sears. <laughs> <laughs> All of this ages me entirely. I went to Sears. I bought a Laserdisc player, and then I went across the street to, like, Circuit City or something, and I bought... Uh, Carlito's Way was the first laser disc I bought, and then I buy every week. You know, it's crazy about it. The Criterion had such beautiful laser discs. They had this Citizen Kane package on laser disc. It was like a trifold. It was just loaded up with extras and interactive kind of menus and stuff, and it was beautiful. It was, man. I I had a. I had quite a few of the Criterions, and they were not cheap. I'm telling you. Uh, yeah, all all black, all black and white cover. Uh, you know, good quality cardboard. It felt like you know the, the sleeves and everything. It was very mm-hmm. beautiful. Now, the only way you get art and packaging like that is actually with the with the vinyls that they issue now. The soundtracks. Some of that pack- packaging is really beautiful. Yeah, I miss that. I really do. Uh, I remember getting the Criterion uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind because that was the only way you could see the original 1977 cut of Close Encounters because at that point, the only thing on video was the special edition, which has that awkwardly placed footage (laughs) at the end of the movie where he goes inside the ship, which totally makes the movie come to a complete standstill, if you ask me. Um but I bought it for that, and it had a boatload of extras. And there was a whole – I remember there was a featurette on there where Spielberg was explaining why letterboxing is important to movies on home video. And this was in the uh, – like 91, 92 when people 
you know, letterboxing was considered to be a terrible thing at that point. And I just remember him making his argument on that disc and I thought it made sense to me. Um, totally. But yeah. And of course it's filmed in Panavision. So that was the first time I was able actually, actually able to see it, you know, it's correct aspect ratio, uh, since it's theatrical run and that was nice. So yeah, those were, those were interesting times. And, um, if we had only known that we could get those, <laughs> those the, the, the just a couple of years later there'd be DVDs and we could get for about a fraction of what we were paying for those laser discs. It was so exciting though when you get a new laser disc and break the seal on it right and put it in there and you savored every one of those extras. Now there's, there's so much content out there you don't have time, but back then you'd get one of those laser discs and it was an event you'd you'd feast on it for a week. Yeah. You know, going yeah, through it was all a the beautiful things. thing. It's a beautiful it thing. I had all the, the the big Star Wars box set that they came out with. I, another Criterion, like the Entertainer, the the um, Lawrence Olivier movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I remember many many of those, and I had to sell them all. So, but there yeah, there are still places that you can go to where they you know the used Blu ray video stores. There's still some out there. I have one right in Tampa. And they still sell laser discs. They sell all, all the older laser discs. With all of them are old because they don't issue them anymore. But it, mm-hmm. man, I kind of romanticize actually buying a bunch of them and picking up a player if I could find one that works. And you ask the you ask them, does this work? And they said, well, this player you have on sale here, they have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a there was a thing about some of those discs. Though, uh, they they had this thing that was called laser rot. That uh, that would in, infect certain ones that were pressed in certain plants. I know that they were, they started de- determining that that some of the the discs had this thing, and I had a couple of them that that started. I could I could detect the laser rot because I'd had them for a while, and and I it, it yeah it would cause the picture to have speckles in it and things like that. So yeah, there was a it wasn't like that on all of them. It was just incumbent upon the the place where they were pressed so uh but yeah that that was a thing and that would be a thing i would be concerned about if i were buying some of the the ones now because you know you might get one that plays perfectly and you might get one that's infected with laser rot and you might (laughs) you might have to use it as a frisbee infected with laser rot (laughs) that's right stay in stay indoors stay indoors maintain social distancing you don't want to catch this laser rot (laughs) That's what I was gonna say. That's Put why it's <laughs> yeah. That's why it's important when you're selling laser discs to keep them at least six feet apart. <laughs> they might catch laser rot. That's true. Um, uh, and some of the features, you know, on some of those laser discs have not been replicated on DVD. Yeah. There's some, some of the commentaries, uh, or yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing that's important to to mention. I have held on to. I I uh, I do. I took. I sold all of mine, but there are a couple of them that I have uh, that I still, I mean, I, I duplicated them and, and kept the files and turned them into, you know, files that I could watch, you know, on my computer or whatever. Uh, one of them is Texasville. I have the director's cut of Texasville, which was never issued in any other format. Uh, Peter, it's Peter Bogdanovich's uh, preferred version of that movie. It's 30 minutes longer, and it's it plays out much better than the theatrical cut. Uh, I still I have that, and I have the... Um, 
the day after, which was issued on Blu-ray, but the original commentary by Nicholas Meyer, uh, and this is the European cut of the movie too, which is different. I kept that one. I copied that one off as well. So yeah, there's there's some stuff like that that just didn't, you know. And the you and I have talked about the Glenn, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross uh, Jack Lemon commentary, which never uh, made the leap to the Blu-ray. Uh, so yeah, that was only available on Laserdisc. So yeah, there's it's it's interesting some of the stuff that never made the leap. Uh, not to get hung up on that, but a couple more of the uh, and, and another thing I wanted to mention about these new Paramount Present titles, uh, the, some of the featurettes uh, features that were on previous releases are not being carried over. There's a, a behind the scenes documentary on the making of Fatal Attraction from the previous Blu-ray that is not on the new. Uh, Blu-ray, even though it, it it does have a brand new 4K transfer supervised by Adrian Line, some of the old extras are not. So it depends on whether how important those old extras are to you as to whether you want to keep the old the old one. Uh, King Creole, uh, Elvis, uh, 1958 film directed by Mar- uh, Michael Curtis. Uh, this is another one of the Paramount presents. Um, good cast in this one. You've got. Carolyn Jones and Dolores Hart, who later, of course, became famously a nun. Uh, Walter Matthau is a mobster in this one. Um, <laughs> it's uh, and you've got uh, Vic Morrow. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's nothing to lose your head over, but still, uh, it's <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's terrible. Uh, uh, King Creole is uh, is has been issued. It looks beautiful. I did look at it, and it's uh, it's great. So they it's the first time ever on Blu-ray. So interestingly enough, King Creole is, is written, the script is written by Michael V. Gazzo, who we know from The Godfather Part Two, Frankie Pentangeli. So <laughs> that's uh, that's an interesting piece of uh, trivia for anybody who 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 wants to know or is in, would be interested to know. Uh the nineteen fifty-six film To Catch a Thief, of course, uh Alfred Hitchcock film. That's uh, also been issued uh, as part of the Paramount Presents line. It has uh, Leonard Malton has a piece on this called the um, Filmmaker Focus, Leonard Malton on To Catch Thief. And it has uh, some carryovers from previous issues, Behind the Gates, uh, Cary Grant and Grace Kelly, and commentary by Dr. Drew Casper, a Hitchcock film historian, mm-hmm. and the original track. So, yeah. Dr. Who? Henry Drew Casper. Casper. Drew Casper. Yeah. Dr. Dr. Drew. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was about to ask, Dr. Drew. He is a professor of critical studies who pre- previously worked at the School of Cinematic Arts at USC, considered an authority on American film from World War II to the present. Huh. Well, another Warner Archive title, Reflections in a Golden Eye, starring Elizabeth Taylor, oh, and wow. there you go, Marlon Brando. John Huston, right? Yes. Weird, uh, I think weird movie. Made... First, uh, first feature film for Robert Forrester. I was gonna say yes. Uh, and uh, it's a strange movie, and the whole thing is uh, bathed in golden light. It's like mm-hmm. it's it's actually a golden movie, but it's a it's a weird one. And there are the homosexuality in the film. Is it is it played explicitly? I mean, is it? Is it made explicit that the movie deals with homosexuality in some way? I don't think so. I think it uh, does, though, right? Well, maybe it does. I, I, I don't remember. It's been so long. I don't remember 
much about it to be honest. No, I'm asking is is it does okay, you don't remember much about it. I'm wondering no. maybe I'm misinterpreting it to th- to think that maybe Brando's character or something in it is okay, repressed sexuality, both homosexual and heterosexual. That's what the movie's about. Yeah, cuz I was talking about this with an uh, a scholar last week about the uh, you know, queer cinema. Because mm-hmm. I'm trying to put together a segment on the boys in the band from 1970, and and you know when I was in the hospital last month, Cat in the Hot Tin Roof was playing on TV in the hospital room, and the nurse came in and she didn't know what it was, and, I, and so I started talking to her about it, and you know I said first of all the first thing you got to know about Cat in the Hot Tin Roof is it stars the two most beautiful people you've ever seen in the history of movies between Paul Newman and Elizabeth Taylor, and the second thing is that. Uh, it, it's a movie that can't really be about what it's about, which is, I think Paul Newman is uh, homosexual in the film. Mm-hmm. And so the whole movie is spent kind of sidestepping that. And so it's kind of yes. a curiosity, what's going on with this character? Um, and I think a lot, of, a lot of Tennessee Williams pieces actually did that, whether it be The Glass yeah. Menagerie or anything else he Street wrote. Guard. Yeah. So, uh, because it, it couldn't be made explicit at that time. And then Stanley Kaufman wrote an influential piece where he more or less chastised filmmakers of the time and playwrights for uh, for leaving that kind of uh, under the surface and not mm-hmm. being more explicit with it. They're kind of playing around it, kind of dodging it, which led, which inspired the writing of The Boys in the Band as the Broadway play, as the off-Broadway play. An eventual movie. Taylor. Firebird is a stallion. Brando. You disgust me. Elizabeth Taylor. Have you ever been collared and dragged out into the street and thrashed by a naked woman? Marlon Brando. I swear I'll do you! Reflections in a golden eye. A story that shows you what people do to each other. In the name of love. Reflections in a Golden Eye stars the Elizabeth Taylor who showed the world what a woman really is. Reflections in a Golden Eye stars the Marlon Brando who has shown you how powerful and dynamic a great actor can be. Reflections in a Golden Eye directed by John Huston who has directed some of the finest motion pictures of our time. Taylor Brando. Now a love story may never mean the same thing to you. Again. Lousy bastard! Beating my heart! The Major, he knew what his wife needed, and it wasn't him. I think you'd better go up to your wife's room. She's not alone. My husband is with her. The Major was everybody's idea of how tough and cool a military man should be. Until those few seconds when he thought he was going to die. When he saw what he was. What he wanted. And what he'd have to do to get it. Leonora. The kind of woman every man can have. Except her husband. The Cremator. Cremator. A film by Juraj Herz from 1969. It's uh, one of those uh, <clears throat> Czechoslovakian filmmakers. It's um, about a crematorium manager in 1930s Prague who believes uh, fervently that death offers the only true relief from human suffering. 
He's recruited by the Nazis, and his increasingly deranged worldview drives him to formulate his own shocking final solution. So uh, this has a cult following. It's a new 4K restoration, a short documentary from 2011 featuring Hertz filming, loca- visiting his filming locations and recalling the production. And um, Oh, I love, that. I love that stuff. I love when yep. they visit film locations. If I, had all the, if I had all the money in the world and I didn't have to work... Uh, that's what I'd spend my time doing. Not traveling to see like historic sites and stuff like that or going to Paris or anything like that. I'd go, every place I'd go would be tied into a movie location I want to see. Yeah, I would love to do that too. That would be quite fantastic, a quite fantastic way to, to spend one's life, I think. So, um, the 1986 film, When the Wind Blows, this was previously issued by Twilight Time. And it's now been reissued by Severin Films. This is a really, really good animated film about this uh, elderly couple who were uh, basically an, a nuclear bomb has been dropped. And they're trying to figure out what's happening to them. And in the midst of all this, they can't figure it out. And the, I remember the the husband in the I've seen this, like I said, very powerful little film. Uh, I want to say David Bowie contributes the title song for the film. But uh, anyway, like I said, very, very beautiful animated film, When the Wind Blows, from 1986, that I would recommend has been issued by Severin Films. And Love Among the Ruins, the television film that starred Catherine Hepburn and Laurence Olivier, the only time they acted together, directed by George Cukor. 1975, this has been issued by Kino. I know this was a big deal at the time. It was one of those ABC made for television films, and I think it only had one commercial break. I think there was uh, a car, some car manufacturer or something, I think, sponsored it, and they had one break, and that was it. Uh, but it was, a, it was a pretty big deal. Those are two big stars, of course, coming to a – doing a, uh, being paired up together for the first time and doing a television film. I, I remember uh, it caused quite a stir. So Shirley MacLaine is in Woman Time 7, 1967. That's another Warner Archive release uh, for anybody who's interested. I'm sorry, that's a Kino Lorber release. There's a uh, um, – I know this is another. This ties in again to uh, something that you're going to be talking about on the upcoming series. This is called uh, – it's a new documentary called Blood and Flesh, the Real R. <laughs> Ill life and ghastly death of Al Adamson. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the first segment of the first episode. Hell's okay. bloody De- Hell's bloody devils, and we have the director of Blood and Flesh as one of the guests. I saw the film. Mm-hmm. It's good. It's a good. It gives you a good understanding of Al Adamson and the independent film of a certain ilk during that time. He was really like a p- paced together a movie by any means necessary kind of filmmaker who who suffered a grisly death himself yes yes he did and uh i have heard this documentary is quite good yeah i like it a lot and uh i mean uh this director he he runs severin films uh david gregory he has something oh, to, nice. yeah i don't know if he runs i don't know his official title but i think severin films is actually his baby mm-hmm. so uh he's directed numerous documentaries um and this is just his latest one, but uh, he actually is coming out with a big box set of all of Al Adamson's movies. It's like this super duper thing that because of the pandemic, 
it was supposed to have already come out, but because of the pandemic, the, the, the production of the discs has been delayed, but it's a big, like $300 deal. You really got to be a, a completist to, to buy it. Cause there's a lot of, a lot of movies, a lot of shit, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's a, well, I know one of the there's a kung fu film. I was just listening to the uh, the latest uh, episode of uh, the Pure Cinema podcast, and Quentin Tarantino is the guest on there, and he was talking about this uh, kung fu film that Al Adamson made that he was because he's not a big fan of Al Adamson either, and he said I uh, I was so surprised how good this movie was, mm-hmm. and I can't remember the name of the, the title of that movie, but it was one it's of his, it's uh, covered it's covered in the documentary. Okay, uh, I don't remember the title of it either, but it's it's in there. As is Hell's Bloody Devils. Hell's Bloody Devils has a lot of good stories. Vilmos, um, who shot that for him? Uh, it's in the episode. Uh, the guy that did Easy Rider. Um, Laszlo Kovacs? Kovacs, yeah. So he shot movies for Al Adamson. And so did Vilmos Zygmunt. And Vilmos Zygmunt did not get paid for one of the movies he did with Adamson. And, uh, so Adamson got a got himself a paper route, hmm. <laughs> and he paid he paid Vilbosch in like nickels and quarters. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's the kind of filmmaker he was, and in a sense it's like an irresistible, you know, portrait of of getting a group together by any means necessary, producing something. You know, yeah. it actually speaks very very well of the magic of making movies. That kind of communal experience you have doing that. And uh, yeah, he was something. He was something else. And he made uh, Dracula versus Frankenstein. Yes. And uh, and he made the movie. Uh, and he was trying to think of a way to make it more commercial. And uh, so he put in Dracula and Frankenstein. He actually made the movie without either Dracula or Frankenstein. And then they said, well, let's retitle this Dracula versus Frankenstein. Let's put those characters in that. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and he cast his Dracula. I think he cast his Shrink, who had never acted before. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite a uh, yeah. Go see the documentary. It's it's good stuff. I've got to I've got to watch that. I've got to. I, I guess you can rent that online or something. And it's on uh, Amazon. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll have to pick that up or, or or watch it rather. Yeah, very very good. But he has aficionados out there. I mean, I was surprised when I when I went to send out invites for guests for that segment a lot of people thought very highly of him mm-hmm. yeah i know i know there's a there's a certain fascination and maybe it's also because of his uh grisly demise also <laughs> i'm sure that plays into it yeah i mean the people now but these things there's people that truly love his movies love his films yeah, yeah and he he did spend a little time on the convention circuit before his death and yeah. uh, but he left movies because uh, the I think the drive-in market kind of dried up and his currency dried up and he never got a chance to make you know something of quality that he wanted necessarily. But mm-hmm. he he was a very smart guy. He owned businesses. He owned restaurants in L.A. that were very successful. Mm-hmm. And he just took in the wrong housekeeper who ended mm-hmm. up killing him. So. It's a chilling story proving life can be stranger 
than fiction. This story reads like the plot of a bad horror movie, except this is real. And the victim, believe it or not, was a horror film director. Macabre death. A UFO docudrama. The mystery. Horror movie director ends up in a horror movie scenario. I just couldn't believe it. Al Adamson. Like, who was this guy? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll be on the lookout for that. Um, Connecting Rooms is another Kino release. Betty Davis and Michael Redgrave. That's from 1970. And A Secret Ceremony with Elizabeth Taylor and Mia Farrow, uh, also starring Robert Mitchum. Uh, this one I've always wanted to see. It's one of those that I, I've always heard really – it's held in really high esteem. I know recently it screened at the New Beverly, and uh, they were – Talking about it, speaking, speaking, uh, singing, singing its praises when they did the New Beverly podcast covering all the, the uh, uh, covering all the films that they were running that particular month that it ran. So, uh, and it's one that I've never seen. So, anyway, Kino has released this secret ceremony from 1968. Mia Farrow, the same year as Rosemary's Baby, obviously. And um, so we'll move on to the final week, April 28th. Uh, just one of the guys from 1985 is being issued uh, in an anniversary, 35th anniversary edition from Sony. So uh, they've been uh, they're putting that out. I don't think there's any new extras, but I don't think it's ever been released on Blu-ray either. So maybe that's the big, the big thing. There's great love for that movie. Yes, there is. Yes, definitely. I do remember. You know, it came out when I was a new teenager, when I was just, you know, being receptive to the opposite sex. And uh, I do remember there was quite a defining scene of her in a bathing suit <laughs> in, yeah. the, that, in that movie. And she actually turns up in the um, Warren Beatty, the Peter Biskind uh, Warren Beatty biography, mm-hmm. because she spent some time with Warren Beatty. So she had some insights into his personality. Joyce Hauser, I think is her name. Interesting. I read that book, but it's been a while. Well, the Grand Budapest Hotel has been issued by Criterion. Of course, this was previously issued uh, by Fox, I believe, who distributed it initially. But there's new extras, new transfer. Uh, if you're a fan of the Grand Budapest Hotel, well, there you go. Uh, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark from 1988. That is uh, Arrow Video is putting that out in a new special edition, new transfer, new extras, of course, uh, made at the height of Elvira mania uh, in the 80s. Forgotten Gialli is a box set of Gialli films from Vinegar Syndrome. I think uh, The Killer is One of Thirteen, Trauma, The Police are Blundering in the Dark, a couple of Forgotten Giallo films there are hard to find. Uh, they run the, the year's or 1973 to 78 on the release That's the name of the movie? The Police Are Blundering in the Dark? That's one of the films. Yes, it is. Yeah. I wonder what the original Italian title of that was. (laughs) I like when you, like like when you name, when the name of the movie is actually so practical. (laughs) Yeah. Like, uh, I forgot to wash my hands or something. (laughs) It would be the Italian pandemic movie. (laughs) (laughs) killer be killed from 1980 uh, 1976 Uh, that's a uh, i believe a scorpion release as is the lost continent from 1968 Uh, those are both scorpion releases Uh, my girl and my girl 2 are being issued separately uh, from sony 
uh, as is Radio Flyer, directed by Richard Donner. Those are Sony releases. And we also have uh, a criterion of me and you and everyone we know. The film by Miranda July from 2005. The Wind from 1986 is another Aero Video release. Um, uh, it's a horror opus um, that has, um, let's see, I think it's uh, Meg Foster is in that. Yep, Wings Hauser and David <laughs> McCallum and Robert Morley and Steve Rails back. So, come on. Yeah, what come a cast. On. Meg Foster and Wings Hauser. Come on. you got to pick that up. <laughs> Pick it up before it gets infected by laser rot. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. So the um, one of the early Merchant Ivory productions, The Europeans from 1979, which stars Lee Remick, uh, is being issued by Cohen Media. So uh, they're, they've done a restoration on that. Uh, Shatter from 1974. That's uh, another Kino release, as is Outcast of the Islands and Billy Liar. Hmm. Schlesinger? Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Tom Courtenay and Julie Christie. 1963, that's a Kino release. And like I said, Outcast of the Islands is 1951. Caper of the Golden Bulls, 1967, another Kino release. The Sound Barrier from 1952, another Kino release. Uh, and Don't Drink the Water from 1969, which was famously written by Woody Allen, who would remake it, uh, would uh, redo it as a television film, but uh, I don't think he was happy with that. Is that the one with Michael J. Fox, the television version? Is that the – Yeah. He's in Russia there. or something, or the USSR? Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that was – that may have been the film that led uh, Woody Allen to uh, wash his hands of the whole farming out his scripts to other people and – <laughs> All that kind of thing. And one more uh, from Kino would be Tartuffe from 1925, silent film. And uh, I believe that's pretty much going to cover all of the Blu-ray releases for the month of April. Um, you know, I, I'm sure they probably had to shuffle some stuff around with the ongoing pandemic, but that's – there's still quite a few titles to choose from. Oh, yeah, from Cats to Tartuffe. <laughs> it's now or never Come hold me tight Kiss me, my darling Be mine tonight
My.